Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that's happy to share its property world wisdom with anyone who'll listen. And today is all about sharing because we're looking at the co-living market, a sector that looks like providing much needed accommodation and an investment opportunity. The total demand pool for this type of product we think is very large, actually in excess of 700,000. We think it's going to fit potentially students, postgraduate students, key workers, young professionals moving to cities for their first job. This is for people who want their privacy, but at the same time actually want some community. So it's about giving people more choice in the market. I'm Guy Ruddle, and co-sharing the studio with me today are two people who know more than is healthy about the potential of co-living. James Hanmer is Savile's Head of Purpose-Built Student Accommodation Investment and Co-Living. In the last two years, his team have closed more than £7 billion worth of transactions in this and the student market. Uh, James, welcome to Real Estate Insights. Thanks, Guy. Morning. Sounds like you've been busy. Yeah, we've, uh, we're never, never quiet. Excellent. Well, that's better than the other way around. And Paul Wellman is an Associate Director in the Business to Business Research Team, and he focuses on the private rental sector, including co-living and senior housing. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Guy. Great to be here. Good. Well, let's get cracking. James, can I start with you? Perhaps we ought to start with a, with a sort of definition of what co-living actually is. What is co-living? Co-living is a uh, new form of rented residential product that's only been around for a few years. What it does is combine essentially a uh, a student studio property with a huge amount of amenity. So you will get your co-working, your resident lounges, your games rooms, your gyms. So it is a residential product, but essentially with the amenity space on steroids. Right. Each individual gets a, is it like a bedsit or just a, a bedroom and then everything else is communal? Yeah, so essentially each resident, and this is generally the uh, form that's being delivered at the moment, each resident will get a 20 to 25 square metre room that's got a small kitchenette in there, but they'll also get access within the wider scheme to shared kitchen facilities, lounges, gyms and so on. And who's this market for, do you think? The total demand pool for this type of product we think is very large, actually in excess of 700,000. We think it's going to fit potentially students, postgraduate students, uh, key workers, young professionals moving to cities for their first job. Um, So it's very wide indeed. So, Paul, uh, James says there's a market for uh, of over 700,000 for this. Why? What, you, where's the demand coming from? Well, essentially, we've quantified the market by looking at people who currently live in the private rented sector who are between 18 and 35 years of age, uh, who live in households without children, um, and they also have to be classified within four of the 15 key demographic groups uh, who are tend to be more affluent and who also have a higher propensity to live in shared accommodation and also uh, critically have personal incomes where they can afford the median one bed flat within their local authority. So we've done that across the entirety of the UK and as James says, the big number that comes out of that is about 725,000 people who we are classifying as the core target market. And so the, there's your core market of 750,000 odd. Uh, what is it? Yeah, what's the situation now? How much supply is there now? So there's around about two and a half to 3,000 operational units. So there's not a huge amount. You know, you've got the collective schemes that, that most people know about. 
If you look further afield in terms of, you know, the, 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 the wider pipeline schemes that are under construction, in for planning, uh, across the country, you're looking at about 24,000 units. Right. That's a big gap, James. It is a big gap. And actually, uh, what Paul didn't mention there is that if you take the age cap off of 35, and essentially there is no cap, you get to figure about 1.5 million. So the total addressable market, if you include um, the totality of everyone within those five key key demographics, as I say, and take off that 35 age cap is, is very, very significant indeed. And is this essentially a product? Go on, what were you going to say? I was just going to add that um, 79% of people who are living in co- in the collective schemes in Old Oak and Canary Wharf are aged 18 to 35. But that what, all this, what that also means is that 21% are aged over 35. So this is actually a product for, for everybody, not just young people, although they are going to be the, the core target market. Yeah, because one imagines... You know, when I, when I first heard that we were going to be talking about this subject, I immediately thought of you know students or post students, and and, and that was the, the the obvious group. But 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 you're sure, are you, that 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 it's wider? And you as you get older, you know, you, you like your privacy, right? Yeah, I think that um, it absolutely is is wider. And obviously, from the schemes that uh, do exist, we have the data from that. Um, but it suits young professionals very well who want something that is brand new, fully furnished, no hassle. So generally, when you buy co living, we buy co living room or rent one. Um, you will be um, you'll be paying one bill that includes absolutely everything apart from maybe your laundry bill. It's very akin to the student market in that from that perspective. Um, everyone who is designing this coming off the drawing board at the moment, the idea, the intention. Is, is to make it very well number one very flexible tenancies for for people so they can stay anywhere from a month through to a year plus um, but also to have it all inclusive so you won't be paying extra for your gym use for your utilities for your tv license for your internet uh, for your council tax so it is all included in one bill and, and in terms of within the UK, where where are we sort of fundamentally talking about the, the market for this this property this type of property being We won't be surprised to hear that within the core target market of 725,000, 22% of that is within London. And then other major regional cities within the top 10 are places like Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, Sheffield. And then further down the list in the top 20, you've got places like Brighton, Bristol and Leicester. And within those cities, what sort of locations are we talking about? Edge of edge of city, centre of town. What what is it? So it is the majority is the city centres, um, and we've drilled down even further to look at small geographies of where that where the highest potential market currently live. And within London, it's places like within Zone One and also Shoreditch, Brixton, Bethnal Green, where you might see. Uh, large populations of, of young affluent people and this is essentially i guess paul a product of the unaffordability of ha- of housing currently absolutely um in london first-time buyer deposits are up to one hundred sixty thousand now which is pretty you know eye-watering so as you can imagine yeah this is for people who are priced out of the wider market who maybe don't want to live in, in a house share or on a flat share with other people who want their privacy, but at the same time actually want some community, just not, not living in, in a flat share. So it's about giving people m- more choice in the market for people who typically haven't had a lot of choice. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the, the, the actual product itself. James, what sort of size normally? How many how many units in a in, in a development or in, in a property? I think they could be um, of any size and um, within reason. So, you know, for example, we're currently reviewing a scheme um, down in, uh, east of London that's got 800 units. So that would be 800 self-contained units all between, broadly speaking, 20 and 30 square metres. Um, and then the the huge amount of amenity space that comes with it. Generally on the amenity side of things, um, it's about five square metres per resident per unit. Um, so what that gets you is essentially a lot of those shared spaces. And do they all have sort of similar types of, of um, you know, amenities? You mentioned gyms uh, a minute ago. It, it, you know, if you're, if, you're develop, you know, if you're advising a developer or a landlord you know, on this, are you saying you've got to have a gym or you've got to have this and you mustn't have that? I think that that generally is the case, yeah. And it depends, obviously, where these are sited. You know, if there's a huge amount of local amenity, then you might go a bit softer or might reduce the size of certain of those amenity areas. But generally speaking, um, and, you know, for co-living, people have largely taken their lessons from the very best spec student schemes that are around at the moment. Um, but we do see the requirement and the demand for gyms, certainly, um, you know, for those resident lounges, co-working spaces and so on. And it's a relatively new market, Paul. So when you're when you're looking at it, are there are there lots of lessons to be learnt from you know the 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 the, the, the sort of you know the wild west, the first people into into it. Yeah, so the the first generation schemes that people are now calling, uh, typically the the collective one again. The some of the bed sizes were on the small side, and I think the ones that are coming out of the ground now. Are, are typically much bigger and giving those kind of personal spaces uh, much more, uh, they're much more sizable. I think it's probably just fair to say as well, you know, they're, they're smaller bedrooms in comparison to what's come off the drawing board now. Um, but clearly, in terms of occupancy rates, those two schemes that do have smaller size bedrooms still perform tremendously well. So there's a place in the market for people who will willingly accept slightly smaller spaces and obviously pay a slightly smaller rent. Do you imagine mm-hmm. it's going to be a market where, which has lots of different, ty- yeah, lots of variety in it, or is it going to be something that you know, essentially people work out the economics of it and say it's got to be like that? I think that there's, you know, if you take your lessons from what else is happening around the world, um, you know, in the US, for example, the co-living model isn't necessarily what we. Uh, believe the co-living model is in the UK, i.e. this kind of small uh, or the, the studio-led scheme. Um, they very much do the sort of Friends TV sitcom um, setup where you have bedrooms um, off of a common shared uh, kitchen, dining, living room area. So I think that there's a huge place for that and we're starting to see the likes of Downing, for example, deliver that kind of product in Manchester. So I think that we'll see the whole range of that common flat share um, all the way through to um, essentially studio bedroom units. What about the planning issues uh, uh, around this? I mean, for a start, you know, do people want loads of just ex-students doing party town right next door to where they're living? I think this is about creating a mix of different tenures uh, within communities. The GLA have a co-living within the local plan now or within the London plan H16 if we're getting really geeky and what that kind of does is is provide a broad framework for for co-living developers around 50 plus units uh, schemes have to be in single ownership and all the rest now the London plan have now provided some extra guidance uh, that is currently out for consultation that looks as though it might be a little bit too prescriptive so we do want to you you mentioned earlier about innovation 
uh, and keeping innovation out there so that schemes aren't all all the same and so developers can can do different things and create different products for different price points and for different people and of course these aren't these are sort of standalone in their own space type things it's not like an hmo next door to a you know a family home or or something like that which can have its you know sort of perhaps slightly different issues that, that's right. It'll be it'll be sited on its own um, its own plot of land. You know, it'll be a tower property, perhaps if you're looking at, at London, um, and it will contain within it, as I say, all the amenity um, that make those residents sort of perfectly happy to uh, either stay in, uh, as it were, or, or go out. So we've reached a point where we we now understand. I think, at least I think I understand the, what the product is and what the demand is and all that sort of stuff. But we haven't yet solved this gap between there being a pipeline or existing of 20,000 units and a demand for plus of three quarters of a million units. So that's going to take some investment. Who's, who's around in this market? Which, you know, who wants to, to invest in this market? I think perhaps unsurprisingly, given that the model is very akin to student accommodation, we've seen some of the first movers be from that space predominantly. So the likes of Downing or Watkin Jones or Vita or Scape, um, who are making probably the most serious inroads in the sector at the moment um, have all transferred across and started doing their own co-living schemes, whether that's developing them out in the case of Watkin Jones or building to hold in the case of, uh, of, of Vita. And is that because they just, they, they, they really understand the dynamics of the whole thing in, in a way that other investors don't yet? I think that's absolutely right. So all of those parties will have their own in-house management operating platforms as well. Um, So they'll be able to get a very good steer as to what those managers think of the demand pool and how easy, how expensive it is to actually run these schemes. So um, having that expertise uh, means that sort of the transferable skills and ability to move across sectors within the sort of the wider PRS uh, field is, 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 is relatively easy. And Paul, that's, that, that all makes sense, but it doesn't sound as if that's going to bridge this whole gap, you know, the, 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 these existing people. Do you, do you see other investors, do you think, coming into the market? Yeah, absolutely. And um, just as purpose-built student accommodation developers are doing so, uh, built-to-rent uh, players are too. So you've got Get Living um, and others. Um, and we'll probably, yeah, like likely see see further inroads from from other investors too i think i think the um i'll just add to that that i don't think the problem is demand for this product investors very much want co-living the problem is as you've referenced their guy there's just not enough product um that's available at the moment either that's built or to fund right so the people want to invest in it but they're just they're just there isn't the land there isn't the the planning permission, the, the the pipeline, this isn't there yet. That's right. There isn't enough. Um, there isn't enough planning permissions um, at the moment, or existing stock for people to buy. Um, and you've got to think as well that some of obviously the land that's being bought at the moment to go through planning to go and achieve a co-living consent, sui generis co-living consent, is actually by the parties that are building up platforms themselves. So that won't be openly marketed at the current time to the wider investment market. They'll be building up a platform, uh, building out, and then looking to sell in say four to five years' time. Yeah, when you when you talk about there, there isn't the stock there at the moment. I, uh, do you imagine the, the, this the, this being a situation where existing stock is converted into co living, or more that we need part? You know, that the, a lot of the new build stuff or a chunk of the new build stuff needs to be co living. I think it's a combination. Um, so people are taking on office offices or uh, redundant offices to either sort of refurbish um, and uh, reposition. Um, but but a lot of stock that's coming through is with the idea that you take a piece of land, you go and get a new planning permission for it. 
Is this fundamentally different in any way from all the other sort of shared living things like purpose-built student accommodation mm-hmm. or is it senior living or multifamily or, or anything like that? Is it going to follow the same sort of path as those? So I think this is uh, PBSA plus, as it were. This is housing for graduates on the whole who have lived in PBSA, who have enjoyed it. Um, and who don't want to go and live in a flat share. So it is similar, very similar to purpose-built student accommodation, especially for people who are moving to cities for the first time. Um, and we see you know, the growth of this sector following following that of PBSA. The number of PBSA units in London is 100,000 plus. Uh, across the UK, including all the regions, it's about sort of 650, 700,000. Now, we're saying that the core market for co-living is very similar in size. Uh, student has been around for 30 years or so. So we feel as though we're right, right at the beginning of this. And, um, and you're, you're transacting in this market. Is it, are they deals being done in a sort of similar way to other types of, of, of shared accommodation? Um, I think it's very piecemeal at the moment. Um, so we have done deals in the sector so far. So we've done two forward funding deals. One was for Watkin Jones down in Exeter. One was for Urbane London and Ealing Broadway. Um, another one, our corporate finance team put together a JV uh, in in uh, the, with the first asset in Wembley between Reshape Land, Generation Estates and Crosstree. So we feel as though we've got a, a really good handle on the market. But as I say, guys, it's just right at the early stage of the sector. So the very large transactions that we see in PBSA uh, that will come in BTR are quite some years off when it comes to uh, comes to co-living. Now, gentlemen, that's been great, great to have you here to do that. But you can't go without paying your dues for being on Real Estate Insights. And the way you pay is by having to play our game called Tell Me Something I Don't Know, a little nugget of information which sort of shines a bit of a light on on things and makes people go, ooh, didn't know that. Uh, Paul, why don't you go first? Tell me something I don't know. So 0.4%, that is the current penetration rate of the sector across the UK. So you get that by dividing the current operational stock divided by the core target market, that 725,000 figure. If you add the entire pipeline to that, you come to 3.3%. So like I said, still a long way to go with just at the very early stages of this sector. Lots of headroom. James, tell me something I don't know. It's not going to be hard, if it's if I'm honest, to tell me something I don't know. <laughs> um, so what I would say is to try and gauge the popularity of the sector... Uh, look across the pond. So there's an operator in America called Common. They've got about 6,000 uh, units there. They get 80, 80,000 uh, inquiries per month. And what that ultimately translates to, le- translates to is eight applications per va- vacant bedroom. I mean, if you're an investor, that's just like, well, why am I not in this market? Exactly that. The demand pool is very much proven and they very much want this product. Gents, thank you very much for that. Uh, Thanks for your time. And more importantly, thanks for your wisdom. That's the first time we've talked about co-living. I don't think it's going to be the last. If all that's done is whetted your appetite for more information, you'll find plenty in the UK co-living report, which was put together by you guys, right? That's right. Well, there you are, you see, all their hard work. You can find it at the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk forward slash research. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. 
Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.